Welcome to Look Mom, No Hands. We have an amazing show today, exploring those scary choices life presents through the lived experience of our guests. Many of you will recognise that incessant whisper in your ear, tugging you to change your life, squaring up for the big jump. Whether it's career, life, family or love, there's that saying, if you're unwilling to be a foolish beginner, you will never improve. Or as I say, a life lived in fear is only half a life. Hello and welcome. Today we are joined by Dale Eleanor McCready. Hi. Regular host, myself, Sarah Sharman, and my partner in crime, Daniel Confino. Hi. So, Dale, thank you for joining us. So, uh, I met Dale quite a few years ago now. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when now. No, and I'm <clears> terrible <throat> at maths. So, but we're working on a production in Wales. Yeah, Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And since then, we've just keep bumping into each other on various jobs and out and about socially. And I thought, what's a great person to have in? Dale is a cinematographer, DOP, and avid cyclist. So you probably thought this was about bike riding. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it did make me think there's a cafe called Look Mum No Hand, so, which is a cycling cafe. So <laughs> it, did, uh, it did make me think of that, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so to start with, are you one to let go of the handlebars whilst actually cycling? Uh, no, I'm, I'm actually. I'm funny enough. I'm, I don't actually. Um, I'm not so great at my bike handling skills that I like to ride along with no hands on the bike. And I watch the kind of like classic London teenager who does wheelies down the middle of Oxford Circus, and you know, and then rides with no hands all the time. And I'm always a bit like tisk tisk, you know. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Okay. But that's just about cycling. <laughs> that's just about cycling. You don't you don't go that cautious in life. Uh, no, most of the t- I have, well, I have, I'm actually fairly cautious, but I've obviously, being a trans person and a cinematographer and a New Zealander who moved countries um, to live over here, I've had some bigger jumps where I've taken larger risks. So I think I, I don't take risks too much generally, but then I save it up for some bigger changes. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So you say you're from New Zealand. Yep, I'm from Auckland. North Auckland, okay. You came over here in what year? Or? I came over in 2007, so it, actually 15 years ago last week. Um, oh. So it's been quite a long time now. Right. In fact, you know, more than a quarter, well, not quite a third of my life. So I've actually been here quite a while. And how did you prepare for coming over here? Or did you just thought, what's the worst that can happen? I've I'm I, trained in this area. Were you doing something else before? No, no. So I had a, <clears throat> excuse me. I had a 15-year um, career in the film industry before I moved, um, because I'm, you know, I'm 50, so I've, I've been I've been working for a long time. But I had just reached a point in New Zealand where I wasn't progressing as a person. Um, being a trans person, I always had that in the back of my mind that if I went somewhere else, more anonymous, potentially bigger, where there were just more people, and sort of started again, I might find a bit more courage to make this giant leap to transition. And um, I didn't. I basically moved and then didn't do anything about it for quite a long time. Right. <laughs> but um, well, for, for another 10 years. But, but that was always in the back of my mind. There were two things. It was not being that happy in New Zealand and thinking, I've got a good life here. I could you know, keep progressing slowly in my career and I could make a home for myself and have my friends and family nearby. But I might always wonder what would have happened if I'd taken a bigger leap to go somewhere else and, and, and New Zealand's a long way away so you always feel like you're on the edge of the world and that the rest of the world is out there mm. and there was just a part of me that was like I don't want to I don't want to I've often thought this I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back and have regrets that I didn't try something so and, and that's definitely comes up a bit with, with me um, and so I was just like I've got, I've got to take that leap even if I go for a year or two years and then come back to New Zealand and then settle down at least I will have made that decision for myself mm. not had it made for me just by default because I just didn't do anything yeah. you know which is what a, what a lot of people do do they stay in their hometown and they don't move and they're very happy and that's great yeah. but I always have that niggling thing in the back of my mind what if 
what mm. what else you know could be there and so moving was a was kind of a big decision i uh most people would go much earlier from new zealand to, to the uk being a kind of a colony uh new zealanders often go on what's called an oe overseas experience um, usually there's like a two-year visa limit anyway. So people might go in their early 20s, they'll go work in a pub as a, as, a, as a bar person and then travel around and have a good time and then go back to New Zealand and kind of settle, settle into their life proper. Uh, I waited till I was 36 and I had never meant to come over here, um, but I came over with a girlfriend a couple of years before and while she was working, I just wandered around London and mm-hmm. um, I actually had, did live here till I was five years old. Um, even though I was born in New Zealand, we moved here very soon after. And so I, I walked around, I was, I was like, wow, this place is extremely familiar, weirdly homely, and oh. felt like, oh, I remember what that looked like. I remember what that felt to look at that brick, <laughs> particularly, squirrels. I saw a squirrel and realized I hadn't seen a squirrel <laughs> in 30 years. Wow. Whereas they used to be in my back garden when I was a little kid. And I was like, oh my God, a squirrel. I remember you, you know? And, <laughs> and so I had this really strange feeling of being somewhere new but also somewhere incredibly homely and familiar and I think those first few years when you're growing up can be quite you know um, imprinted on your mind mm-hmm. and so I when I went back to New Zealand after that I, I kind of was having inklings of wanting to go somewhere and it just it seemed like well okay I'm going to go back to London and try that amazing yeah so you've been you established yourself in New Zealand coming here you said first time you were with a girlfriend and you were just hanging around hanging yeah, around. <laughs> yeah she, was, she was working yeah she was working so I walked around listening to my uh, iPod and just walked around the city and really enjoyed it and you know that, it was a nice and I've got great memories of the music I was listening to from the, those few weeks as well wow. um, but yeah I was I was at a reasonably high point in my career I suppose in New Zealand as a cinematographer in New Zealand, which is a long way away, you're always, to a degree, letting the work come to you, mm. because it be, be the bigger jobs are foreign jobs. Um, they, they roll into Auckland or Wellington. And clearly, everyone yeah. who is from New Zealand worked on Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. But yeah, I was. I was. That was in Wellington, but I was in Auckland doing American television shows, essentially. Right. And um, so I, but you're kind of waiting for those American shows or those bigger jobs to kind of roll into town. It's a little bit like a service country in that respect, some, which some some smaller places in the film industry are. They're kind of letting the LA or London productions come in and do work on them. And it just always felt like I was waiting for work to come to me rather than getting work, you know. Um, and and as you move from being something like a camera operator or a technician in a crew to being a director of photography, mm. you're more of a head of department and you're more engaged from a high level by the producers. And those bigger jobs start bringing those people in that role over with them because they're part of the, the core team that work on a job. So if you move up from a camera operator to a DOP, I wasn't getting those jobs. Right. So you kind of had I kind of had to go somewhere else to raise up in my my level in the industry to then go back to New Zealand to do those shows in some ways. <laughs> Weirdly enough, though, you can actually, because of the streamers and Netflix and people like that, there are a lot of big shows shooting in New Zealand now which are hiring New Zealand cinematographers. But back when I left, it wasn't really the case. Okay, so when you came over, did you just kind of like jump in and be like, oh, I'm going to just pick myself up and apply for this and put myself out there for that? Because you've been working on some amazing series and shows and I'm yeah I, I was a bit lucky I think um, I I actually had partly again because I was a little stagnant in my career in New Zealand I, mm. I'd reached a good good level I was doing commercials and I was doing the larger dramatic pieces of television in New Zealand but I wasn't really being challenged and the last six months to a year before I left New Zealand I had actually started directing music videos and doing animation music videos in particular so I was spending a lot of my time just um, going out creating shoots for a band and then spending three months animating the work Mm. and so when I moved over here I was actually getting interviews to do animation and directing and I wasn't filming at all and I'd, I'd sort of given up a bit on filming because I wasn't enjoying it and when I came over here I sat had coffee with someone in Covent Garden uh, who was going back to New Zealand and we were kind of swapping contacts. And uh, their phone rang and their agent was looking for someone to work on a, f- a feature film for free who could, but could also do Steadicam, which is a uh, 
a camera stabilizer that you wear. It takes a bit of experience to operate. And, uh, and I was sitting around, so I said, yeah, I'll do it. Um, and um, I ended up working on that feature, which was called Tony, with a director called Gerard Johnson. So it's sort of a hackney serial killer film. Very, very low budget. And uh, there was just myself and, and one camera assistant as the crew, um, and then sound. And I really enjoyed it. I, I was like, oh my God, this is what filmmaking was actually like when I started out and it was just a small group of people making a film. And I kind of realised that I didn't get sick of cinematography in New Zealand. I'd gotten sick of that I wasn't getting to really do it more mm. and stretch myself and do different parts of it and learn more. So I'd, I was bumping up against a sort of a ceiling of kind of experience. And um, and then since then, I, I jumped back into cinematography. I, that person that called their agent signed me on and then got me my next roles as a, as a director of photography again and since then I've been enjoying it because I got to actually start stretching my skills uh, in the UK and I think I, if I hadn't moved from New Zealand I probably would never have been in that position where I was doing shows that allowed me to keep learning and growing mm. um, yeah but I think it's a funny thing that I had to take that risk to move in order to keep learning and keep growing in my my actual career, that, that's <clears throat> one of the things we're looking for in this in this series is, is you know pivot moments when people have changed you know fundamentally what they're doing and the thinking behind that and you know from other conversations we've had sometimes it seems that people are more ready to make that when there's nothing to lose you know when, oh for um, sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> because I, if things are going too well. You know, yes. you, you, it's very easy to stay in, in you know, on the rails and, and just, you know, keep comfortable and yeah. wait for the next job and not really move on, but make a very good living. Yeah, I think but comfortable is the perfect way of thinking about it, is that I'd become uncomfortable in New Zealand. I, <clears throat> I'd actually recognised that I was not being as nice to people because I was a bit unhappy. I was being grouchier and snappier with people. And I had a few more arguments with friends that I worked with and things where we were disagreeing, but it was more of a clash than an actual disagreement and it wasn't I couldn't back down or whatever and I kind of pulled myself out of the situation because I, I recognized that I was the one who was making it worse mm. I was the one that was unhappy mm. the other people around me weren't mm. and so I was kind of becoming a worse person and by, by just being kind of shriveled up and annoyed you know and and so I kind of had to make some big change uh, there, there had to be something I could do about that and that was removing myself from potentially comfortable, more stagnant situation in New Zealand and throwing myself in the deep end and into London. And, yeah, um, yeah it, I mean, the, the change was really visceral. I remember the first six months I moved over here uh, still feel like years to me. And I look back and I realise a lot of stuff's happened since, but a lot of my very formative memories when I moved to London were all actually just in the first three or four months because it was all so new and so vibrant, you know. Do you, do, you, do you have any belief that when you've taken these big leaps of faith that sometimes, I'm not, not taking a religious approach here, <clears throat> but there is a sort of a God, like that call you mentioned that your friend had from an agent whilst you were sitting in, in a cafe, were you, you know, and, uh, and that led to, well, I mean, do you, do you, or do you think it's just that you open yourself I, to stuff when you make decisions and, I, and open up possibilities? I think it depends how you look at that, because, you know, mm. you could look at it from one point of view and say, wow, that was an incredibly lucky thing that I happened to be sitting there. Have, like, we were sitting on seven dials on the, on the uh, kind yeah. of... Was that the Monmouth the, coffee the, shop? The, the, well, we had a Monmouth coffee in our hands, but we were sitting <laughs> on the stone. And, you know, that phone call from that agent at that particular moment yeah. really did get me my career in the UK as a DOP. Even though I was very experienced, I was having trouble finding mm. an agent and because they don't really... You know, it's a closed door. It's a closed door, yeah. It was, and it was, that was extremely lucky. But then from another point of view, you could say it took me six months for that phone call to ring. So I, mm -hmm. I was really just making, eking out a living as a compositor and you know, doing sort of smaller graphics yeah. jobs and things. So I was, it felt like a long time before that mm -hmm. opportunity came. But I wouldn't necessarily put any sort of like uh, supreme being in there, but no. I, I definitely think there was a, a, a large amount of luck. Yeah. And um, I think... Luck, with that luck, I have, I had the background of the skill set right. that when I was offered the opportunity of those jobs, I was able to then jump into them because yeah. in some ways the next show that I worked on was Merlin and uh, I, I, they, I hired me as a second unit cinematographer for the first episodes. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, that show, to me, I could see that the producers were looking for a kind of an Americanized version of a medieval story 
And that is exactly what I'd been training on in New Zealand because I worked on Xena and Hercules and Young Hercules and these these sort of 90s shows, which were this American, they are literally American medieval shows. And so when I'd started on Merlin, I could see that the, the producers were looking for something that I could really give them. And they weren't getting that out of the local filmmakers necessarily because the style at the time was much more naturalistic and kind of more kind of UK drama. And that that's kind of changed. But I was like, oh, they're doing, they wanted a more American glamorous version. I can do that, you know. Yeah. So there was a very good match that suddenly kind of happened as well. Uh, another piece of luck, I, I, would, I would think. Yeah. yeah, well, as um, Arnold Palmer said, um, the more I practice, the luckier I get. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good way to think about it, actually. Yeah, I think <coughs> you do create mm. opportunities for yourself and you do, mm. you do open up avenues for yourself with your experience. Yeah. But I think you can equally shut those avenues down by being locked in your experience and thinking you can only do this or that, you know, mm. because that's what you're good at or that's what you've trained for. Uh, and I think then what happens is you reach that dead end and you realise I've got all these skills but I can't use them. Uh, for me, I mm. I have to keep learning and growing. <clears throat> if I if I'm not challenged or a little bit frightened at the beginning of a show, then I've probably chosen the wrong show, yeah. you right. know, and I'm not progressing. Yeah. And I can't I kind of maybe I'm a bit addicted to that now, but I try and live in, with that in my career as much as possible. Always choose the thing that's a bit harder than I think I can do. Yeah. I mean that that yeah. fear of failure or perceived failure in the eyes of people that matter to you. If you if you take a career turn make a decision that doesn't work out, you know, or maybe the embarrassment or shame, I don't know, whatever it is. Do you think that's overplayed in the way people make decisions? <clears throat> uh, yes, I, th- well, I think fear can stop you doing things for sure. And I, I've certainly, socially, I probably struggle with that. Like, don't go out very much because I'm just a bit shy and a bit scared of the failure in social situations. But then I thrive on that fear in my career and I create that situation where that fear is just bubbling away Mm. because I find that very healthy for me in my career Um, and if I don't have that then I'm probably not trying hard enough you know I'm probably not risking enough in my job and and the weird thing is I've got older as a cinematographer I definitely know the best work that I I do and when I'm delivering the best work for a director and a producer is when I'm really right on the edge of failing or playing or or just teetering on a slightly cavalier um, way of dealing with the material that that I'm a, I build a, a sort of a framework where I can give myself just enough risk and fear to stumble over the edge and get it wrong but if you don't play on that edge you just do the same work that everyone else can deliver so you're not bringing anything unique to the table mm. and I did learn from my commercial career I was okay at commercials and I did some quite big ones but I realised after I'd stopped doing commercials for a while when I'd moved over here I looked back on them and I realised that I was always giving the director exactly what they asked me for but what they weren't saying is what they wanted was more than that Yeah. and I, and I needed to actually find a way to give them what they weren't asking for you know and that's your own personal point of view your own sense of, of uh, visuals um, in my job and so I've always tried to keep that in my mind now is like that I, I'll give them what they want but what can I do to give them something a little more and can I just be cavalier enough about what I'm doing that I'm always flirting that edge of, of, of danger yeah <laughs> I was possible. thinking also in times where you've been on a production where a director is doing their job but they not doing it so well do you ever take that that lead and carry them through or you is that something that you can you can do or sometimes it's not really wanted do you take like I have two ways of thinking about that I I think I am actually engaged to do that if necessary Mm. by the producer because I'm not just employed by a director I work for a director but I I actually am employed by the producer to deliver the material Mm. so there's a slight contradiction there is that I'm there to do what the director wants to do, but if it, but sometimes directors aren't as experienced or their skill set doesn't is, is more concentrated in one part of filmmaking and not a more generalist um, part of it. And so sometimes I do have to take over the visual side of it to deliver that for the, for the producer and hold that director's hand or prop them up sometimes. I have another side of that where I partly feel like that shouldn't be my job to do that because that person sometimes people learn need to fail as well in order to grow and learn themselves and if they're always caught 
you know, there's always a net to catch them when they're not doing their job. Maybe they're not going to get better at that job too. But yeah. so sometimes all the mum watching on saying, just let go of the handlebars if you yeah, can. Yeah, I, I think I need to let. I, I try to support that person. I try to deliver the material for the producer to not make the show fail <laughs> because yeah. that's that is really my responsibility. But I do think I also need to give people the room to to stumble as well and and let them learn by doing and maybe not getting it completely right sometimes. Um, working with a director as a cinematographer is is interesting because I think that a, a director, I, I've said this to crew as well, I would rather we had a point of view and a design in mind and then failed in trying to attempt it than just got along with this whatever was mm. simple and easy. Is that, yeah. that famous um, saying, <clears throat> you know, the best thing is to make the right decision then the, the wrong decision, but the worst thing is to make no decision. Yes, usually. completely, yeah. <clears throat> I'm interested, in, if I can just take you back to your sort of, do, do you have the greatest ability to visualise what's going on in terms of the end result of all the people on the set? Is that, um, is that, is that a skill that you yeah. have more than the director, more than the other people? Yes, I think so. I think, right. I think that is, if I was going to pick out any skill that I've developed over the years, it would actually be that. And it's weird that you've actually asked that, because I would probably say that's like my, my pet thing to maybe say, that I don't get asked. Um, oh, well, I'm, yeah. we're doing we're so well already. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, weirdly, I, I have a background in graphics, I have a background in anim computer animation and animation and art. And the one thing I've managed to hone over the years of working and a lot of experience of filming, and I started on a soap opera when I was younger, so I've filmed many, many, many episodes mm. of that, it, it is the ability to be able to play the film or the finished film or show in my head as we're talking about it. Yeah. Reading the script, I can picture it completely. And even when we're on set with the actors, when the actors move, in my, my, my mind I can move them in my head <clears throat> and replay the film, and then I can change the lighting and then replay the film. So any tweak where we make to the story or the scene or the technical issues we ha might have, I can re redesign it in my mind and then replay it in my mind at instantly. So... I can tr test things out very quickly in my head and it does mean that I'm pre-visualizing the show that we're trying to make all the time. And the technical side of actually then shooting it is just trying to execute that. Um, but that, that would be my kind of main skill set as a cinematographer, I think, is to, is to do that pre-visualization -visual, and be able to keep adjusting it, not be locked into it either, because some people can pre-think a film in their head or a story and then if something goes wrong or changes or someone comes in with another idea, they can't adapt to that new idea because they're like, no, it's not what I saw in my head. Yeah. And I think the trick is to just keep changing what you see in your head, you know? Um, yeah. Can I, can I ask you then about equipment, actually? You know, yeah. Obviously, um, we all watch the finished product and I, many people have no idea what goes on into the making of a film and they leave well before the credits have rolled so they've got no idea, you know, the army-style numbers of people to, to get it all together. But, I mean, one of the things I read from your website was just your ability to play with the gimbals and the technical arms and so forth and mm -hmm. adjust them. And I mean, do you, do you have any kind of engineering or is this a trial in skills or is this a trial and error kind of feel for the subject that you've got? And does that allow you then to use the skill you were just talking about to visualise what it's like to strap a camera to a suitcase <laughs> or, or something that the director has never thought of? Yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, a cinematographer is a strangely technical, mathy artist. Mm. Uh, you know, you're combining the, the knowledge of technology and different applications of technology into provide, making images that hopefully tell an emotional story. So there's a very weird collision of art and science. And um, a huge part of it uh, as a cinematographer to stay relevant in your career is to stay up to date with new equipment and, and see where the trends of equipment are going, see what how they're being used, and also just even being a bit of a geek and going, oh, there's a cool device, I wonder if I could do this with it, and maybe finding a different use for it as well. And I've come up through a kind of middle to higher end budget level in television lately, and what I could see when gimbals and drones were just starting to emerge was that the gimbal that holds the camera on a drone uh, was very quickly going to not be on a drone and actually just be handheld, and that's where the first sort of Movi Pros or Movi sort of gimbal system started emerging. And I could see that that was going to be a big change. Um, I'd come from a very traditional Steadicam 
sort of filmmaking background where we could move the camera, but it was a large, heavy device. It took a great number of years of skill to get good at it. Um, and then you had dollies, um, which are essentially the little trains that hold the camera and roll mm. along a track, or cranes. All these devices traditionally are very large, quite heavy. The cameras were quite big. But I could see the gimbals emerging at the same time as the cameras were ju- reducing in size because of the push of digital technology and the, the, the scaling down of the components, the better and better sensors, making smaller and smaller cameras yeah. that can do more and more. And then suddenly the devices that could hold those cameras started getting smaller and smaller and could be more flexible. And so I very quickly jumped in and bought a cheap uh, Vietnamese gimbal that would kind of <coughs> hold the, a stills camera that I could use. And on Atlantis, uh, a BBC show a few years ago, I, I got that going and see, to see, well, what can we do with this now? Okay, I can put this on a cable cam. I can fly it over the set or through, through a forest. And it was uh, literally a Canon DSLR mm-hmm. hacked to record video. <coughs> and... And so that gave me enough of a sense of what these gimbals could do that I could then start working with gimbals more. And as they've improved and the cameras have gotten even smaller, now we can use these tools to do even more things. And I think what's that, what that's given the film industry is the chance for smaller productions to do very high-budget-looking moves and, and, and shots that would have taken... The army, yep. the army of people to do it before and a very expensive equipment now you can do with a, a one man band or a smaller team and that's that's really good value for any show because uh, suddenly you're, you can make your small budget television show look like a feature film Right, I, I was musing actually on the way over here you know, I live in Greenwich and John Harrison who conquered the problem of measuring longitude, developed um, um, a naval um, clocks, chronometers that could survive all the movement of the ship. So there was sort of the gimbal, mm-hmm. if you like, of the 18th century or yep. 17th century. And I was thinking that you're sort of playing in the same game or in the same game today. Is how do you hold something steady in a moving environment? Yeah, and I think, you know, again, mm. it comes back to this weird combination of emotion and technicality. Yeah. Um, if I have any engineering background, it's just a, a sense of design and kind of playing with things and, you know, understanding the mechanics of how something works. But I... I have like a grade of types of motion that I use as a, a to refer back to. So, from extremely smooth mm-hmm. and steady linear tracking cameras, which might be a, a camera on a rail, uh, like a train track, to something that's rough and blurred and handheld. And there's a big scale in between where you could be moving the camera in a steady cam sort of fluid manner, or you might be even smoother with a gimbal because it has digital isolation or correction in the motors to make it hold the horizon steady. Or you might have a different device that gives you even more movement where it's really small and you can Mm. maybe fly that camera around someone or to a drone. So I think there's all of these choices now where you can go from being super, super smooth and silky steady to really rough and and kind of free. And I think I'd choose the, the tool for the emotion that the moment and the story needs. And I really love doing that. Uh, my next script has got a lot of this sort of thing where I'm using different types of camera movement for different characters and different moments and different time sequences to reflect the feeling that I'm after. You know, I, sometimes I want it to be wild, wild and frenetic. So mm. what's the camera device that can give mm. us wild and frenetic? And then other times it wants to be very deliberate and very uh, maybe even so steady that you don't even notice it's moving but then you suddenly realise it is moving to kind of a horror movie aesthetic where when the camera moves it's saying something because it didn't move before you know there's all these different yeah. things you can do with movement that I find really fun What about the lighting side of it? Do you get involved in that? Do you direct that? Yes, so that that is part of my main purview so as a director of photography you're in charge of the lighting and camera departments so um, with the director, we go through the script. In an ideal world, we have the time to really read it together and talk about what we see in our minds when we're reading it. And and then I would go away and I would design the lighting that from notes from the director, what they were looking for, the emotion they want, the feeling, or re- maybe references. They might give me photographic references from other shows or artworks or paintings and um, just stills they found on the web. And um, I will then design the lighting for the scenes to match into the, that feeling, so I coordinate the lighting department to do that. Then, and so I'm also so I'm in charge of really three departments: the 
the lighting department, the camera team, and then the grip team, which are kind of camera support, yeah. um, in order <clears> to <throat> kind of achieve that. I mean, I've seen some of your own stilts work, and you use a, a roll-eye flex, do you? Um, I did till I sold it. I really regretted selling oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I inherited one from my mum, which came from pre-war Germany, actually, um, which is a you know was the camera that was used to photograph us growing up. Mm-hmm. So it's got a strong emotional sort of pull. But I mean, where, where are you on the sort of digital analog uh, debate? Um, I've always been a bit of a uh, progressive person as far as digital analog. I love film, and Merlin and Atlantis in particular, I got to shoot sort of seven years of 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film. And before that, I shot a lot of film. Um, so I do know film very, very well and have operated as an A camera operator on film cameras and anamorphic film cameras quite a lot. So. I really loved that experience and the results of it, but it was very clear to me even in the 90s that the digital cameras, you know, people like, oh, digital will never be good as film. And it's kind of like, well, you know, <laughs> it's going to get as good as film. And then the thing is, it's not going to stop there. It's going to breeze on past because it's mm. at the beginning of its development life and film was really at the end of its development life. You yeah. know, there's a century of film development had it had already happened. And then digital was just getting going. So... It, you know, these sensors and these cameras have just continued to get good. It's not that they're as good as film now. They're now far superior. And I think there's still a need for people that like film to shoot film because it is organic and it's chemistry. There's a different technology involved. But at the end of the day, mm. it's still technology. Mm. It's not magic. You know, it's still someone worked out the technology. And if you, <laughs> if you went to a producer now and described to them, well, we're going to take this chemistry this this very expensive chemistry and put it on this acetate backing and but make sure you don't expose it to any light until you put it in the camera and don't, make sure you don't scratch it and then it's quite expensive and you could be you got limited amounts that you can run through the camera and then you've got to put it back in the dark again and then you've got to put it in a chemical bath and peel the acetate off the back and hope that you don't destroy it in the chemicals <laughs> and and then we're going to project that into a an, onto a wall or into another machine you know the producer would just say you're crazy but that's what we used to do with film all the time every single day that's so nerve-wracking to have it's, all that yeah i mean film as a technology is extremely fragile and it's beautiful but we'd all gotten very comfortable about how it worked so you know people would think oh well, it's film it just works and it's like no there's so many steps to protecting it that you don't have to do with digital and it has digital has its own steps to look after it but they're far easier and simpler and safer for the production um, and I think the the images mm-hmm. these days are as good if not far superior than film now so yeah I, I mean the cameras we have now um, just to segue into another rambling point but mm-hmm. the um, I, do, I do tests quite often of different lenses and cameras each year and I did a couple uh, two years ago just sort of pre-pandemic and the, my main conclusion testing all these main cameras that I was had a choice of is that they were all really good you know and it wasn't actually the camera choice that was going to determine the, mm-hmm. the, whether the show was going to look good or not it was much more subtle about what we were looking for out of each of those cameras to shoot our show and in some ways it came down much more to how big is the camera mm. like they all have great pictures but maybe that other one is a little bit easier to move because it's just that little bit smaller or it can you can work faster on set because of the way that the, the system is yeah. designed. So th- those have become the choices. They're all very good now. Yeah, when you're talking to somebody who grew up with a darkroom in the cellar under our house, I was a school photographer, so I'm a, a wet chemical freak. It took me ages to get over to digital and then to realise that digital could do all the things that I could do previously. Yeah. But it does, it's clearly the case. Well, um, I take a lot of personal stills and I haven't used a full-size camera to do that in a, quite a few years now mm. because... I've always got my phone with me. Yeah. My phone, although optically it may not be as good as a, bu- a bigger camera with a decent lens on it, but I've always got that phone, yeah. and I can now record, shoot a raw photograph and grade that raw photograph on my phone. Yeah. And I've got some fantastic photos in the last few years that have just because that moment or that place that I was at, I would never have had the time to reach for another yeah. camera. You know, that you actually just discover something a little more. And um, there's definitely a place for larger cameras when you're taking personal mm. photographs. I'd like to go out to take photos specifically with a bigger camera 
but to do that I have to decide to go and do that that's actually what my my task is at that moment it's go to take photographs but if I'm just walking around my general life my phone is much much better because it's just in my pocket so do you think there's a connection in your career between the work you did in animation where you could do anything you know with digital like that sort of Pixar approach to life and what's now possible with filmed um, cameras the the ability to you know there's a lot of if you think of something like Beauty and the Beast, you know, there's a lot of turning around the subject and soaring mm-hmm. views and so on, which was obviously possible from an animation point of view. Do you think there's been some connection now between what the, the visualization that you could achieve in an animation sense and, and what can be done with, with shooting live I, scenes I th- now? Yeah, I think so. And I wouldn't say that so much in terms of technically you're able to do it because the animations, you know, if anything, Pixar movies are often so good because they don't lift a pen until they've decided what to actually make because it does take so much time and effort to actually create the animation but um, you know so they really make sure the story is really good but mm. I do think that we the film industry kind of or film in general the culture of movie making and television it just it, it feeds back in in itself so you know the more popular Pixar animation is the more they tell stories really well the more they fly the camera around the more directors want to fly the camera around in real life mm. too. So, you know, we have all these extra tools now. People flying drones. Like Michael Bay, his, his most recent film, is using racing drones inside, flying around the actors, in like actually in buildings and down corridors and things. And that's like really pushing the limits of what you can do just yeah. moving that camera. And um, you know, that is partly because people are used to seeing animation and and games and. You know, it's so much easier to move yeah, the camera in 3D space, but now we can maybe start to do that in real space as well. And I think these things feed back. So, you, you know, once you see a cool music video with a cool shot, that shot starts to show up on dramas as well. Mm. Um, yeah. So it sounds like we've spoken a lot about your work and you're very comfortable with it and you like to take risks in there and you're more comfortable in life whilst you're working. Can we take a peek into Dale outside of work? How, if you could go back to childhood, like, what would you be telling yourself to do to prepare yourself to now being 50, now doing, Mm. living in the UK, just like, or are there things that you've experienced in your late teens and your early 20s where you thought, actually, that was really, really stupid. Like, what was I, (laughs) what was I thinking? But you survived, you came through it, you enjoyed the experience looking back and it shaped you to where you are now or even if it's just like I remember you were having a a bit of a terrible time in Spain you took your bike with you and it wasn't working properly and it's just you were there to have an adventure but then it wasn't the adventure that you that was that wasn't a terrible time though you made it in some tell us like well I mean that's the thing I I really like any sort of adventure um so I earlier this year I would took my first bike packing trip from um, Alicante to Barcelona and uh, I was using the app Kamut which routes you through different places Yeah, and um, it has this tendency to want to take you uh, on trails that really aren't suitable for the mode that you've chosen <laughs> so I had a fully laden bike with, bike with all my stuff on packs and things and it, it decided to take me over this mountain pass that was essentially a goat trail so I was having to carry the bike down the other side. I got up okay, and then I was like, how am I going to get down? And and so I had to scramble down with my both hands on the front brakes and pretty, almost carrying the bike down this rocky cliff, cliff edge. And I scratched my frame, I scratched my wheels, I scratched my shoes completely because it was all just rocks. And it wasn't rideable. I don't even know why it was on the app as a rideable thing. I found out later it was a, a downhill mountain biking track potentially but I would say you'd have to be pretty crazy to go down it on a mountain bike and and why you would put it on the bike touring possible options I'm not sure but uh, that was really fun though I got to the bottom and I got home in the evening and I had a, and it was a really adventurous day and I actually really like that I ended up doing something I wasn't expecting and that I had to kind of get through it and then I had another day where I punctured and I had 130 kilometers to cycle and I couldn't fix the puncture and I had to nurse the puncture for 120 kilometers. And then eventually, the last 30 or 40 kilometers, I had to ride my bicycle completely flat uh, down the highway after, after the, the sun had gone down. On the rim, yeah. <laughs> Which was pretty good until you start hitting this town where it's actually cobbled because then it starts sliding. 
Um, but I still got in yeah. and I was safe. I got home. I got to where I was staying. I got some food and a beer and I was warm. And I was like, that was a great day. <laughs> you know? Like, I actually, in the middle of those things, even when I'm not, I'm like, okay, this is a problem. What? How am I going to get from the middle of nowhere to where I'm staying to tonight? And I, I kind of enjoy that at the same time. Part of me is like, this kind of sucks and I could cry right now. Yeah. But another part of me is like, but I if I make it through this, yeah. I've learned something and I've had an adventure. And, that, yeah. and I think if I can have an adventure as often as possible, then great. Um, you know, because I don't, I'm not that that much of a risk taker in normal life otherwise. Um, but I definitely like, do like to put myself in positions where maybe things could go a little bit wrong and po- possibly I could have done something about that beforehand, but maybe I'm actually partly wanting things to go a little bit awry. So, you know, I quite like to have experiences. So, you know, maybe I need to... F- put myself in situations at times where I again I'm a little cavalier and I let things be a little bit loose to find my way out of them as well uh, yeah I actually realise I do do that quite a bit <laughs> but yeah <laughs> self confidence and self belief are obviously fundamental in taking on new challenges I mean, it's interesting I think you, because there is a crossover here. if you are in a difficult position you can always draw upon the experience of coming down mm. that goat, goat path you know yeah, and also personal um, uh, to, satisfaction, to say, saying yeah. I made it through that yeah, as I well. Mean. I think, yeah, I think there's something really, you know, the feeling of self-reliance, and I, I managed to work my way out of that problem. Maybe it took an extra six hours than it should have done, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I might have been a bit cold and maybe wet or whatever. Um, you know, though, it, it's a little bit, I ride a motorcycle as well, and as I was saying the other, um, to you before this interview, um, I cycled home from Wales on Friday night and got com- thoroughly soaked. And interestingly, on a motorcycle, I'd say the same thing applies. I've never had a, bi- a bad ride on my motorcycle. I've been in thunderstorms. I've been freezing cold. I've been wet and thinking, I really just want to stop and get into a hot shower right now. But I'm still never, I've never not enjoyed it. Right. Even if I've been uncomfortable and I've really wished I could get home, I've still been kind of part of my mind is going, but isn't this a great adventure? Yeah. You know, so yeah. And have you had that adventurous streak from a child? Have like, did you growing up with your parents? Were they always taking you out? Were they just throwing um, you out into the middle of the lake I'm, and going see what <laughs> happens? I'm the youngest of four, mm. and I was the kid that would just run away when we went to the beach. I would want to find out what was around the corner of the next beach. So they, my parents were constantly sending my other, um, my brothers to come and get me. So I would just run away and. Um, yeah, I guess I have kind of forgotten about that a little bit. But um, I, yeah, I was the kid that would nearly drown or whatever just because I would jump off the end of something and then they'd find me in the water, you know. And uh, so I think I maybe I was always a little bit of an adventure seeker as far as just not not adventure as far as danger, but mm. adventure as far as exploration. Yeah. What what else is there? What's what's next? You know, what's is there yeah. something else along Keep further along? Keeping playful in that chimp inside, isn't it? Keeping yeah, yeah, and I think, I mean, I do try and, you know, when I do take a holiday, which isn't that often, and I, I mean holidays and not just not working, but actually going somewhere, um, I tend to do, like, a bike packing trip, or I go on my motorcycle, like, around France or Italy or somewhere that I haven't been, and just explore, mm. and I think that's my favourite thing, if I had anything fun to do, it's just exploring, and it's part of why I love cycling um, on and bicycles, is because you're constantly traversing and finding, going around a new corner and what's down that road. And I've not been there before, I'm gonna go cycle there and see how I can get there, you know. Um, yeah, dude, I really love that, that side of things. And uh, nothing change, has changed much, so. You still out, go out for those adventures that you've always done, but now you mentioned you're trans, you're a woman, and seeing women on bikes is something still a bit odd. Well, not odd, like we're getting used to it, seeing women, bus drivers, seeing women in roles that are predominantly male is a breath of fresh air. Like my friends are part of a motorcycle group and they go riding around uh, London or wherever. This huge group of women on their bikes, these big beefy bikes. And I look at them and I go, wow, you are amazing. But we're still opening doors for women in in like male-led roles and recently there was that fatality on the Alex Baldwin film where 
the cinematographer was a woman and people were like, wow, there was a woman leading this film. And it's just such a shame that it's been, we've been woken up to women in this role due to a, a fatality. And it is only a small percentage of women who are in this position. And now you're here championing not only women, but trans women and working differently, but then also not working differently because you're still doing what you've always done. But tell me how this has, has changed ways for you, how we've opened, how you've opened doors. How people have adapted to Dale Part One or Dale Part Two, if so. Yeah, or... I think it dovetails back into what you're asking about risk and taking the hands off the handlebars. Um, I have always been trans. I always knew this. I knew this when I was a child, mm. and I always knew there was something up and things weren't quite right. Um, it was never something that I could really recognise distinctly. And so it was always just a discomfort and wishing I was this rather than what I was sort of thing. And um, But it was a bit confusing at the same time because in the culture at large, uh, trans people were fairly ostracized. Uh, you know, they were sort of trannies and things like that. And, mm. and, and so even in my 20s, I really seriously considered transitioning then. And I chickened out, really. And I, I don't, but I don't think I chickened out for dumb reasons, I think I, I think I checked it out for good reasons, um, because the culture wasn't in a place where it would have made my life better. It mm. would have, it, it might have solved the issues I had being trans, and then being, also and you being work in a male environment, or yeah, male environment back then. Yeah, and I think you know, I it would have just made my life far mm. more difficult, and I don't think I would have ended up in the opportunities that I did have uh, as a man. You know, interestingly, I think I was able to take advantage of the patriarchy to a degree as a as a man and build up my career to give myself the freedom to then make the choice to transition. Mm. And and the culture had changed massively in the twenty years since then. So I started seeing trans people more as normal people, as successful people, as happy people, mm. and people, not as trannies or jokes or whatever or sex workers potentially you know like this was a, a cliche of a trans person but they would generally always end up in sex work and I, the person I knew who transitioned and when I was in my 20s in the film industry got ostracized in the New Zealand film industry and became a sex worker and eventually committed suicide and so you know I didn't have good examples of mm. of how I might have been treated had I come out then mm. and so I just didn't and I kind of kept trying to get along kept trying to be the person that I had ostensibly been uh, even though I knew it wasn't really me and my relationships always suffered because there was always a point in every relationship I had uh, and I, I am attracted to women so I always went out with women and so it was a very much a straight relationship but the, after a certain amount of time I always felt that I was holding a large part of myself back from that from my partner and so I would generally was always end the relationship because I felt like I was lying to them and I couldn't tell them about this part of myself because it wasn't what they were looking for as far as I knew. And and so I just stopped having relationships with, after a while. And um, my last very serious relationship went really well for a while and, and then I realised a year went by, the feelings were still there. I started to feel like I was lying to them. I broke up with them. And, but I knew that at that point I was in my 40s it was like okay now I need to do something about this mm. it's not them it's definitely me you know right. it's very easy to go oh well they weren't quite the right person or my transness was there but I had hoped that the right woman would come along that I wouldn't have to think about that and we would just have a good relationship and it would be fine I could get on with it but it was always there it mm. always came back it always got in the way and that noise was always in my head uh that I was struggling against about this is wrong, this isn't quite right. And I, I was spending a lot of mental energy every single day, every single moment, mm. filtering my whole experience of life through the noise of being trans and not being able to be outwardly trans and myself. Mm. And after a while that became very corrosive and and you know was partly the reason why I wasn't happy when I was in New Zealand 
because I didn't feel like I could transition there. When I moved over here, I kind of got busy for a while, so I just put it aside yeah. and came back. And But that noise was always bubbling away, and it got to the point that it was just, again, I, I thought, what if I got to the end of my life and I hadn't just tried, <coughs> hadn't just given it a go, even if it tried it and it didn't work out. Mm. And so I started putting things in place to transition. And it was the, one of the best decisions I've ever made. Uh, what well, it, it is the best decision I've ever made. And I'm just far happier and a much more comfortable person in my own skin. And I can talk more freely now. Mm. I don't think you could have interviewed me before I transitioned in the same way because I would filter everything I said yeah. to anyone <coughs> yeah. in case I might <coughs> give away to someone that I was trans. You know, like I was always had a had a a filter in front of me and so I wasn't a great conversationalist because it's not an easy way to talk to someone um, and now you know I, I know there were great risks to my career I, when I came out I was worried that I would lose some rungs on the ladder of my career and but I considered that to be an acceptable risk and I'd gotten to a high enough point in the jobs that I was doing that I could take that risk and if I fell down a few rungs it would be worth it mm. and I wouldn't, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Yes, maybe I would have to accept that I wouldn't be doing quite the high-end jobs that I was, had been going towards, but that would be okay. At least I'd get to be me. Yeah. And it turned out the opposite actually happened. It turned out that people have been incredibly accepting. I've been a happier person. I think I've been a more empathetic person since I transitioned. I've got a better perspective on men and women than I had before mm. because I've been able to see both genders from a slightly different perspective as I've moved out of one gender role and across to another gender role it gives you an insight into both that you hadn't managed to notice before and how they treat each other and how arbitrary it often is um, and so I think I've, if anything it's, it's made my work better, it's made me more have more empathy as I say it's maybe a slightly better human being I think because I just have a better experience of, of life than I had before and I think it it ended up being the greatest risk to take. And if anything, my career has bumped up much greater level But since then. You know, and, and whether that, you, you know, you could say, oh, maybe people are just doing a diversity hire or something. But, um, <laughs> but I just think it's because I'm a, a happier person, frankly, and I'm more engaged with the people yeah, that I'm around. Yeah, yeah. And, and people that. pick up on that, you know. Yeah. Whereas I had always been a little bit like holding myself back, you mm. know. Um, and are yeah. there many women in cinematographer roles are you seeing are they able to come up to you do you, do you mentor anyone do you yeah have I, you been a mentored yeah. I, in your I, career yeah I definitely have I mean I'd always tried to have women in camera departments that I'd worked on before I transitioned mm. um I've always wanted to have more equality in in the camera teams and lighting teams and it was very clear to me even as a young film person technician that you know, if you had a crew just guys, it got very blokey very quickly, and mm. it's actually not didn't make me comfortable because it really wasn't my perspective. And it, you just add one woman into that camera team, for example, and then the team changes mm. for the better. Yeah. The and civilizing influence. Yeah, completely, <laughs> and, and, and it, re it really makes a big difference. And, and yeah. I've noticed a few jobs where I've gone back to a fully male camera team, mm. and it's actually really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and they're having fun and stuff, but it's just a bit too <clears throat> too blokey for my liking. But yeah. you know, the, it, it really makes a big difference. So I, I definitely try and bring in as many women as I can into the different technical departments as as hires and as in, in mentoring and trying to develop their skills. I have a camera operator I've been working with recently who I have taken now. I'm about to take her onto a third job with me because I, she's really great and equally, absolutely the, the equal of any guy camera operator mm. in terms of, you know, she can lift what they can lift. It's not near really about physique as much as it is about application of your experience and your mm. kind of gusto for, for it. Um, and she's really got that ability to kind of work the set and work the problem on, as a camera operator. So I, I've really taken it on myself to, to bring her along to jobs with me and keep developing her skills by pushing her into new bits of equipment that she might not be as used to as I am. Yeah. So that eventually I'm not operating the camera as much, I'm getting her to do it for me right. and, and bringing her skill level up to what, where I've been, you know. So yeah, I definitely try and do that if I can. Yeah. I do remember many years ago I was working on the production and one of the, I think, second camera operator was a, a woman and she 
were in the bathroom at the same time and I could hear her crying. I was like, what on earth is going on? But it was just that environment of banter that just isn't really banter. It's, it's really bullying. Yeah, it's quite harsh. Yeah. 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 So it's not fun. It, often banter is a is a, a word I I really dislike actually because it's it's often used as a oh you haven't got a sense of humour love mm. you don't Especially find this funny the words locker room attached to it well yeah it's just it's just like oh you should you just need to you know you need to just mm. enjoy the banter and it's like but it's not funny and it's actually a bit hurtful mm. Um, mm. and it shouldn't be an excuse to be able to be hurtful just because you're doing banter yeah. you know and and I definitely mm. seen a few people like that it's it, the film industry has really changed in the last ten years here. Um, coffee's a lot better and the food's a lot better, but um, the but the way people treat each other, it does not fly anymore to have the kind of more classically misogynist way of working mm. on a film set. It, it people will not accept it now. Mm. The the crews are younger, they're more mixed, they're more queer. They're I mean the film industry is great because it is quite a progressive place to work, right. and even though it's like a a military operation most of the time and it has a very strict hierarchy which it really needs to be able to function within that it's a very oddball collection of people that are thrown together to then work on things and so it is it's quite open to difference Mm. and I think that's Mm. a huge reason why in the film industry I was able to come out and be trans and be visibly trans and a couple of people were kind of taking a step back for a moment, but very quickly realised I was still doing the same job and yeah. still telling them what to do. So they just got on with it. And, yeah, it's been really good. Yeah. Now, can we take a few minutes to think about where things are going in the future, both for you and the industry, actually? Um, yeah. Is virtual reality something we should be thinking about? Are we going to be wearing strange glasses <laughs> to watch movies? Where, where, you know, well, where does that feed into your skills as a cinematographer in terms of what images we're going to be demanding yeah I, I think there's a collision between games and film that's been on its way for a very long time um, and essentially films are a simulation of sorts you know where we've always been trying to take ourselves to a different place with cinema and experience a different life or world for a time games allow people to maybe do that in a more immersive way 3D movies tried to do that for a while to bump up ticket prices. Um, you know, uh, I think there's always been in a, in a direction that we're headed towards a more immersive experience. Ironically, film actually works sometimes in its best way because it's not as detailed as life, because it is restricting what you see. Sometimes it's the fact that it's a composition. Maybe it's even black and white. It's actually about reducing reality into a more abstract emotional idea so there's a slight contradiction between film and and games in that way but but I do think we're heading in a direction where we want to be more immersed in the stories we're telling and uh, you know one of those tools to do that will be virtual reality I don't think that will be the end of film as we know it I think these things will run in parallel for a time until they 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 keep developing but I do think there is a point where we'll be wearing some sort of device that gives us a more fully immersive environment to be in. And then maybe we're watching a play by always being in the front row or standing next to the actor while they're talking to the other actor and be able to walk around them or even interact and be another character in the play. Um, <laughs> some good background noise going So on. much for the sound <laughs> insulation of the studio. Yeah, um, um, yeah it's only, only three layers of glass. The, um, <laughs> yeah, I... Um, the, the, the career for me is I'm already moving into I've always been a bit of a geek as far as virtual reality goes and technology anyway yeah. and I've been doing some development work with virtual production for in the last year or so uh, on the shoots that we're doing we are starting to use LED walls more we're starting to do things where we're running Unreal Engine a game engine to provide some of the background assets that are in behind characters so that, that is starting to blend together already in, in higher budget filmmaking where we can take an actor and put them in a space and but be doing it in the studio much like some mm-hmm. of the, the newer Star Wars shows are doing um, like The Mandalorian and, and things like that where they're actually s- shooting in a set that is mostly made up of pixels in the background and that kind of in-camera capture of 3D worlds is just going to get easier and easier over the next few years and hopefully cheaper. Um, it's got a long way to go, but that's just starting to really become a viable filmmaking tool now. So I think 
I'm really looking forward to doing a lot more so you're, of that. You're at the forefront of all this. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't have... I've done probably two weeks filming on one of these virtual stages, and that actually puts me into kind of expert level, which is kind of crazy, <laughs> because it's just that new. Well, that's what you get yeah. for work experience at, at school. You just go for two weeks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're yeah, ready to leave. Now you can be a cinematographer. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have to say, I'm going through a good phase right now. A couple of weeks ago... I was invited to the British Society of Cinematographers, so um, that's a huge honour. To join, to join them. To join. Oh, right, so yeah. yeah, I now have BSc after my name and my credits oh, right. and things. So um, that's a, a massive leap for me as far as just the recognition of what I've been doing in my career up to mm. this point in in the UK. Oh, and well, um, well. yeah, thank you. And and you know that it's a huge honour and something I never would have really expected um, as a New Zealander a long time ago. There's a, there are only three New Zealanders that have ever been in the BSC. I'm the third. Yeah. And um, I don't think there are any trans people that have ever been in the BSC, so that's kind of cool too. Yeah, that was going yeah. to lead into one of my questions because I was going to ask there what has been a moment. So you've obviously had this recognition with the association, but has there been a moment where you thought, actually, look where I am, look what I've done. And yeah, yeah. You, yeah. I, I mean, I just, just I've just finished a shoot that was is one of the bigger productions I've worked on in my life, uh, with this la- with a, one of the largest budgets, um, very large crew, big sets, you know, very cinematic. Mm. And there was a, there was a moment two weeks ago I was on a set, which I can't really talk about, but yeah. um, <laughs> I was on a set that I was coordinating the lighting and camera and grips department and. You know that is that was seven or eight cranes of equipment being moved around in a giant blue screen space outside a very large set, and coordinating all of these departments working to be able to keep shooting mm. with our two camera operators on board. With so we were using radios and comms headsets to talk to everyone, and we did a really good job and we got really good material and they were very successful few days. And I was I was like, this is really fun. <laughs> this is this is a huge set big budget it's a show watched by 90 million people wow. so it was um is this a pinch yourself moment is that what you're yeah, saying yeah you know, really, like, i'm here doing this yeah and yeah. the weekend before i found out about the bsc and i was kind of like oh All cool right. this is going this is going okay yeah. <laughs> you know and i mean the big thing there as well is is that that was quite daunting to walk into that set and mm. start to set it up and i was part of the design of the set so i kind of knew what i was walking into but it was really satisfying to be getting the material we wanted. It went very smoothly. The design that I helped input into working on it worked well. Yeah. It did what we expected it to do, and I was able to, to achieve the material in the time we had, with all, despite it being as, as giant as it was, yeah. and that's very satisfying. Now, yeah. in, in that sort of pinch yourself moment, I suspect there's kind of a, a series of steps that you can look back to, all of which were fed in. Yeah. I mean, it takes the whole of the past to bring about the present, right? You, you had to take some decisions on if yeah. you hadn't done this, that, and the other. Absolutely, You yeah. could still be in New Zealand shooting animation or something, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but, but ironically, the animation, because a lot of my animation stuff was usually putting the band onto a blue screen or green screen, is there I was in a giant blue screen <laughs> with, with uh, some you know, movie stars. Um, and part of the information I'd, or the experience I'd, I'd had from doing those music videos really fed into what I was doing that day so yeah the, the, it all it all keeps building together yeah. Look, I, I've got a question which is um, just to satisfy myself about something <laughs> we, we have a little joke that in, in so many productions there's a moment where somebody goes up to a window which has Venetian blinds and tweaks open a couple of slats to look out mm-hmm. which may be relevant to the plot or may just be nothing to do with anything is that something you're aware of or are you sworn to secrecy because we think it might be like an in joke in the industry that uh, oh no uh those things are just they're just real they're just um the film industry and stories in general trade on you could say cliches but you could also say archetypes Right. And maybe they're walking up to the Venetian blind and looking out as one of those archetypes. But I, I think, you know, there are, we are we're just remixing the same human story ideas over and over again and dressing them up in different forms. But we're all sharing the same kind of lives. So there is a kind of finite number of story things that we use. And in terms of visuals, there's definitely an influence of visual language that 
we we call back on constantly you know mm. I, and and as filmmakers we do it constantly we're like oh i saw this really great shot in this this other show it would be really cool if we use something like that in our show you know you're always feeding these things back in and maybe it's and also there's homage back to i mean stranger things is a good example yeah. homage mm-hmm. back to earlier films and television shows that people so love like a little nod to like them. a nod to them yeah Something, yeah, yeah. And it, but it's like an in joke for people that are deeper into the yeah. Yeah. into the subject isn't it and it, but um, it's interesting it's, it depends on your experience too you say venetian blinds and i immediately think american gigolo yeah, because it's of course. all Venetian blinds. Yeah, well, American <laughs> you know? windows are usually dressed with Venetian blinds. I actually now yeah. have a almost like a nervous condition when I watch an American show when there's a Venetian blind. I think, just please get it over with. <laughs> I know it's going to happen the one time. Let's just Let's do it just now do it. and then I can relax. Venetian you know, blind bingo. Uh, yeah. Otherwise, if they're standing very near a window, I, I'm feeling, you know... I haven't you know, done a Venetian nerd. blind for a while because I've been doing some medieval stuff lately, mm. but um, <laughs> we definitely had... Well, actually, you know, Maybe that, it's the... The tent cover. <laughs> That's it. I, I was going to say we had the other day. We literally had the finger pulling the curtain back to look out the window. So we did do that one. There is a joke about that. You know, how do you make a Venetian blind poke out his eyes? That's almost medieval. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to add one joke. Dad jokes only, though. <laughs> At least I thought it was funny. No, that um, was good. <laughs> well, look, Dale, I got to say it's been really, really fascinating. Um, and entertaining and so on subject for us you know um, this whole idea of taking risks and exploring life the life unexplored is the life not worth living you know and I think you you stand as a great example and a testament to somebody that's changed your place of work your approach to life in so many ways and you know, you're standing at the pinnacle of your career, and I think that's that's amazing. Well, it's funny because like I kind of think of myself as fairly boring, and you just you just actually talking about it, you've revealed to my <laughs> you've made me reveal to myself how often I put myself in a situation where I allow risk risk to be rewarded in some ways. You know, um, mm. so it's quite nice to go back and actually look at things and go, oh yeah, I do do that. <laughs> I do put myself in the deep end as often as possible, um, and I think, but I think it's really fun. So. Well, it was interesting also to hear about some of the darker moments. You know, like it took six months before that call with with the agent in you know yeah. in Seven Dials. <laughs> and sometimes people tell the story in a in a way that kind of edits yeah. out some of the harder moments. I mean, you know, so I think that it's it's good to be open about that and say, you know, yeah, you, know, and, and, you, and, you have to persevere. And it's not a, if you're plotting it on a graph, it's not a constant upward trajectory. No. You mentioned my Rolleiflex camera. The reason I sold it is because I had no work for six months and I needed to sell things. So what does it go I, for these days? Not very much. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I regretted I sold a bunch of cameras at the same time and I really, yeah. I regret selling every single one. But, um, yeah, it doesn't always go perfectly. I don't always go from the highest income and sometimes I have I've, no income uh, so I've still got my zenithy which was the bar mitzvah present which I can't get rid of that you know? oh you just give me it yeah <laughs> well I'm now going to be looking at life instead of look mum no hands I'm be like am I prepared to go down the goat trail <laughs> yeah <laughs> you get to the bottom that is just going to play in and, my and mind and having succeeded you'll be ready for anything in life that's yeah, the point uh, yeah. Yeah. You just uh, something to draw upon in your just with a few more moments. scratches on your frame but yeah, yeah. yeah. there we go we get through life with some scratches well thank you so much for your time and please join us again for more look mum no hands embracing life's risks bye for now bye don't miss future episodes of look mum no hands Share and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a five-star review on Apple. If you are inspired to take that leap and join us on the show and share your experiences or have a friend who might, message us on Instagram at Podcast. This has been a Talks With My Neighbour Productions, produced and hosted by Sarah Sharman and Daniel Confino. Music by George Twydell, artwork by Jane Confino, and title voiceover by Joshua Sharman.